Charles. It's good to see you. And if I asked you what the most important thing in your life is, and don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to answer that out loud, but if I did, I'm sure you might say something like your spouse or your kids or your family in general or maybe your job. Or we're in church, so I got you Jesus or the Bible, like you would answer the right question in church. But, but if someone got up, let's say, in a town square 500, 1,000 years ago and asked you that same question, your answer would in all likelihood be very different. In fact, most likely your answer would be the king. That the most important aspect, the most important thing in your life is the king. Whatever he decrees, whatever he says, whatever mood he's in that day could have a huge aspect, a huge change in your life. Someone that you've never even met before, someone that you probably would never even know would dictate things like your worth, your purpose in a society. And it's really crazy to us that in our Western mindset, like we have no way of really wrapping our mind around that. Right? Like we have politicians, but that's not really the same thing. Uh, the closest thing that we have to a monarchy here on earth is more like a reality show than it is a monarchy, right? It's more like keeping up with the Windsors at this point than it is. Like, and, I, and I'm not trying to throw shade, but I was never really into the royal family drama until they brought that American chick in. And I was like, finally, someone to root for. Like, get them from the inside. No. So... <laughs> But all kidding aside, like if you are a student of history, if you look back at any historical events, any historical kingdoms, you almost see that it's like a prerequisite to be corrupt. Like every kingdom that has ever existed on this earth seems like it is just plagued by brokenness, plagued by corruption. Even in our fiction, like we can't write a story without it having some evil king or, or some young king who rises to power and is evil. I mean, it's crazy. And even if you get a good, strong king every once in a while, like you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know who the next king's going to be. All of a sudden, he dies under mysterious circumstances, and his brother with a scar on his face comes along and tries to infiltrate. Oh, wait, no, that's the Lion King. I'm sorry. And it's true that history shows us that kingdoms have been broken, but I think even if you zoom out and you look at the kingdom of man, the only conclusion that you could come to is that there's something wrong, that something is broken. That if you look around at everything that's going on today, uh, our political issues, our social issues, issues of human rights, the environment, the only conclusion that you could come to is that we live in a broken kingdom. We live in a broken kingdom. And I could spend 30 minutes trying to rattle off examples for you, and, and I probably wouldn't even get past the last six months. That's how broken the environment that we live in is. Or maybe you don't even have to look at the outside world. Like maybe you can look inward at the details of your life, and you say, I hear you. I hear that you're saying this world seems broken, but, man, my world seems broken. Like I look inward and I look at my broken relationships or my hurts or the addiction that I'm struggling with or um, the depression or the anxiety or the fear that I feel and my kingdom is broken. And what often happens to us when we start looking around or looking inward and feeling that way is we tend to do one of two things. So we either tend to despair or we tend to disconnect. So when we despair, what we do is we look around at all the brokenness in our world, all the brokenness that surrounds us, and we think, man, there must be no hope for anything. The kingdom of God must have failed, or, or maybe it will come through at the end, but like maybe in the very end, like in the book of Revelation, I don't even know what that's all about, but, but something is wrong, and we just despair, we lose all hope, or we disconnect, and we say, you know what, the world is clearly broken, and so I'm just going to deal with it. 
I'm going to ignore it as best as I can. I'm going to struggle through life just trying to deal with it as best as I can because uh, I'm just going to stop caring because there's nothing I can do about it. And I think that both of these approaches, both of these lines of thinking are dangerous and they completely miss the kingdom of God and what Jesus came to accomplish. What Jesus came to accomplish. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe uh, you're not tracking with me when I say things like kingdom of God or, or when I mention like the book of Revelation. You know what? That's okay. That's okay. What I hope that you grab hold of today is that this world is clearly broken, like there's something wrong. And, and I probably don't have to convince you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, that there's something wrong here, that, that there's something going wrong, that something has been broken. And, and while it might be tempting to despair or disconnect, I want to encourage you that Jesus offers us a better way, and that's where we're going today. And so what I want to do together is look at the beginning. See, some of you thought I was doing a revelation message. I'm not doing a revelation message. See, we're going to look back at creation and the kingdom that God was setting up in creation. And so these are going to be some really familiar passages, especially if you grew up in church or you grew, you've been around church for a while. We're talking about Genesis 1 through 3. And what we need to do here is we need to be willing to look through the lenses of kingdom. We need to put on kingdom glasses in a sense. And so we're going to be looking for the ways that God has set up his kingdom in creation. And let me tell you uh, what often happens with passages like this. See, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 uh, seem a little cryptic. They seem a little confusing. And so what Christians often like to do, especially in our context, is focus in on decoding the confusing language or trying to figure out exactly what was going on at creation. And what I'm not going to do today is talk about creation theory or old earth or young earth or literal 6A. Like, we're not going to do that because I think what happens is we tend to hyper-focus on those things and then we miss the point of the passage. And what I would like to say is that while the Bible is certainly telling us certain things about creation, it is telling us much more than that in these verses. It is telling us about the kingdom that God is setting up. But when we focus on these little issues, we miss the big point. And I might get some emails about that. So you can email Pastor Vavone and he'll be more than happy. <laughs> I'm going to get, get in trouble for that one. But... <laughs> And so where we're going to pick up is actually God has already done most of the creating. See, God does his creative work in the seven-day cycle where he works for six days and rests on the seventh. And so we're going to pick it up on the sixth day where God creates man and woman. And the Bible says God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you and for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having breath of life in it. I have given every green plant for food. It was so. God saw all that he had made and that it was very good indeed. Evening came in the morning, the sixth Day. And so here we see the first two commands that are given to humanity. And the first one is to be fruitful and multiply. And often we read this and we just think it's talking about having kids. Like, okay, God wants to just multiply humans and get more of them in the earth. And really that would be missing the point here. 
It's not about being fruitful and multiplying children. It's about multiplying the kingdom on earth. That when God calls us to be fruitful and multiply, he calls us to raise up the following generation to be better than the last. And while it might not be explicitly stated here, this is a foundational point that runs its way through the rest of scripture. So it's probably most clearly seen in the book of Joshua and the book of Judges. So at the end of Joshua, he warns Israel, hey, you better tell the following generations about what God has done. Tell the following generations about how faithful God is. And if you do that, they won't depart from him. But in the book of Judges, Israel constantly fails to do that. And so they fall into this cycle of sinning and wandering from God. And then God faithfully delivers them, but they fail to tell the next generation. And so they repeat that process over and over again. And so were they having kids? Were they creating more people? Sure, they were, but they were failing at what God had called them to do. They were failing at raising up the next generation and multiplying the kingdom here on earth. And so our first command that we see is a kingdom command. It is a kingdom principle to raise up the next generation well. And then he says, subdue the earth and rule over it. And there's obviously some kingdom language in here, like rule, uh, subdue. And you know what? What he's doing is he's calling us to be his ambassadors. He's calling us to be his representatives. Theologians use fancy words like vassal kings. It's essentially this idea that God is a big king over all creation, but he is essentially put into place smaller kings, smaller rulers to rule in his place. We are representatives. We are ambassadors of the king. And it's not because he's lazy. It's not because he doesn't want to do work. No, no, no. He calls us to work and rule and care for the earth because he's inviting us into the story that he's building. He's inviting us to be a part of his kingdom. And this is where the whole idea of the image of God comes into play. See, when God created man and, and woman, he said, let us make man in our own image. And so he created them in his image. And that can kind of get confusing, and we try and figure out what that means. And there's a great quote from a man named Justin Buzzard, and he says this. One word to explain it is representative. There's something of him in us. It's an identity and a calling. You are valuable, created person, uh, created personally by God in his likeness. And your job on this planet is to creatively represent God, to show forth something of God through your story. So as, as image bearers, as people who reflect the image of God, we creatively represent him. We are his ambassadors here on earth. And then, at the same time, we are deeply connected to this earth. Like if you're familiar with the creation story, it says that God scooped up clay from the ground and breathed life into it. This idea that while there is something of heaven in us, there is also something of earth in us. And that as we realize that we are deeply connected to this earth, we realize that we ought to care for it and honor it. And in doing so, we honor God. We honor the one who set us here. And these are just parts of the kingdom that God is building here in creation. What I want to do is skip ahead a little bit to Genesis 2, where the Bible is going to retell some of the creation story from a different perspective, and it's going to tell us even more about the kingdom that he's setting up. So Genesis 2, in verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. 
And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal, every bird of the sky, and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib that he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds to his wife and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked yet felt no shame. And so we get more insight into the kingdom that God is building, into the function that human beings play into that kingdom. And first we see a pattern of obedience that God is establishing. See, maybe you wondered, why does God place this tree in the garden that we can't eat from? Like, it seems a little bit arbitrary. It seems a little bit weird that God would just place some tree that looks really good, but you can't touch it. And what he is doing, and there's a lot of symbolism here, but what he is doing is establishing a pattern of obedience that by saying, hey, you are not the final authority. You do not have the final say. You serve a higher king. As humans, we have allegiance to a higher king, a higher authority. And so the tree functions to, to show us that we are to be obedient and faithful to the God who set us here. And that's going to come into play later. If you know where the story goes, you know that the tree comes back. And now I want to acknowledge um, something that I think a lot of people skirt around. They, they try to avoid in this passage. And uh, it's the word helper as it talks about God creating woman. And at first I want to just acknowledge that throughout history, men have taken words like helper, they've taken words like submission out of their context and twisted them to oppress and abuse women. And I want to just explicitly state that that's not okay. And I think that words like helper in this context are actually beautiful, wonderful words that are steeped in honor when we understand it properly, okay? And so the word behind helper here, the Hebrew word, is the word etzer. And etzer, every time it is used outside of the creation narrative, refers to God. And it refers to the way that God is a protector of the weak. He is a deliverer of his people. And he is a help for them in times of trouble. So when it says, I will make a helper corresponding to him, it's not talking about a cleaning lady. It's not talking about a cook and someone to raise kids. No, no, it's talking about a person to which the family looks to in times of need, in times of needing help a protector of the weak. So, so men, a woman who is a etzer ought to be loved and cherished and honored because this is a godly word. This is part of God's very character that, ladies, you exemplify, especially in the covenant of marriage, especially in the context of family. 
And men, we often like to take passages like this or other ones and words like authority, leadership, and twist those to make it sound like, man, we get to make all the decisions and we get to be in charge and we're accountable to no one. And I would just like to remind all the men in the room and all the men joining us online that the image of leadership and authority that we are given in the scriptures is the way that God loves his people. And God loves his people in a way that is faithful and loyal to the point where he is willing to put himself in harm's way, put himself in the line of fire to be heartbroken, to be hung on a cross to die for his people. So men, when you are called to lead your family well, you are called to loyally and faithfully, sacrificially love your family in a way that lays your life down for them. And this isn't a rabbit trail. This isn't some uh, offshoot that I decided to go on. No, no, no. This is a part of the kingdom that God is building. That a part of the kingdom is this beautiful covenant of marriage where both parties are selflessly loving one another. And in doing so, they are reflecting the image of God that he has placed in them. It's a huge part of the kingdom that God is setting up. But if you know the story, you know that it doesn't all go according to plan, that something goes wrong. And I want to read in Genesis 3, starting in verse 1, what happens. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit from the trees in the garden, But about the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not touch it or eat it or you will die. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of it, some of its fruits and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And everything looks great up until this point. Like, everything looks like it's going wonderful. It's like a fun little garden party. There's like plenty of kingdom principles going on. And then we see the break happen. And what we need to understand here is the lie, is the temptation that Adam and Eve fall into. And it's not that they could have special powers or special abilities or that they could obtain some secret knowledge. No, no, no. The real lie, the real temptation is that they can be like God, that they could be the authority, the king of their own life. It is a temptation to set up your own little kingdom in rebellion of the kingdom of God. And see, I say this all the time. The core of our sinfulness is that we like to dethrone God and enthrone ourselves, that we want to be the ultimate authority the ultimate king of our lives. And when we do that, we just set up our own broken kingdoms that are in rebellion against the kingdom of God. And what happens is God is going to step into the garden and he comes looking for Adam and Eve. He's going to go on his evening walk with them, which is just like the coolest thing I've ever heard. And they hide from God. And God finds them because, as it turns out, God's pretty good at hide and seek. And so he finds them and he confronts them. And they do exactly what every person does. They shift the blame. So Adam tries to blame his wife. 
And then he tries to blame God, which is like wild to me. And then Eve tries to blame the serpent. And what he's going to do, what God is going to do is he's going to confront the three of them. And he's going to detail the consequences for their actions. But the consequences are not individual. They are actually these long-lasting effects that it's going to have on the kingdom that has now been broken by sin. And so this is what the scriptures say. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock, more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust and you will return to dust. And so God, when he addresses Eve... I want us to notice that in each address, something that was a good and beautiful part of the kingdom is now being broken. So first, there is going to be tension in the covenant of marriage. So if you were listening before, when I talked about the selfless way that a marriage can work, you were like, that sounds great, but how often do we really see that play out like that? Well, the truth is, is that selfless love becomes really, really difficult when selfish sin enters the picture. All right, And so the tension that exists between a man and a woman in marriage is a result of the selfishness of sin that gets in the way of the selfless love that we're called to. It's not impossible, but it becomes all the more difficult. And then he also says that there's going to be uh, pain and, and uh, toil in childbirth. And I'm just not even going to touch that one. <laughs> you could go ask somebody that's had a kid. I'm, I'm really not going to. Um, and God addresses Adam. And he says, there is going to be pain and toil in your work. And the thing is, work existed in the garden. Adam was called to work it and to care for it. But it was going to be enjoyable. It was going to be a beautiful action of caring for and honoring the earth and enjoying the fruits of his labor. But instead, it's going to be painful. It's going to be tiresome. It's going to feel like it never ends. And, and I hope that you notice that the three things that God really addresses here between Adam and Eve are, are things like work, marriage, and child rearing that are all broken. And those are the three things that God was setting up to be so beautiful in his kingdom. But I didn't talk about the serpent yet. See, I purposely left the serpent for last because when God talks to the serpent, that changes everything. See, first he says that you're going to crawl on your belly all the days of your life. So I guess snakes had legs. That's just a little thing right there. But what's really important here is when he says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And this is what theologians call the proto-evangelium, which honestly is just fun to say. So I say it at any chance I get. But what it is, is a prophecy looking forward to Jesus. That at the very beginning, as soon as everything was broken, God set forth a plan to restore everything. 
See, the offspring of the woman that he's talking about is Jesus. And I want you to imagine for a second, Jesus is hanging on the cross, and Satan is looking at that, and he must think at some level maybe he's winning. Like maybe, just maybe, he's getting away with it, and and he's going to win because he's seeing the Son of God hanging on a cross about to die. But little does he know that as he's bruising Jesus' heel, Jesus is crushing his head. And in his resurrection, he will have the final victory. He will restore the creation to the way it was supposed to be and reverse the effects of the fall. And so this looks forward to Jesus' death and resurrection and final victory over the fall. And so was was the kingdom broken by the fall? Yeah, for a little bit. But is it being restored in the death and resurrection of Jesus? Absolutely. And our bottom line today is that the kingdom that was broken by sin is restored in Jesus. And we can get caught up in this really American, really modern thinking of the gospel that the only reason Jesus died is to punch my ticket to heaven and it's all about me, it's all me-centric. And while I don't want to discount that because Jesus' death and resurrection does mean freedom for you, it does mean forgiveness of sin, it does mean eternal life with him, but it also means so much more than that. It means that the kingdom is being restored. It means that creation is being made new, that we look forward to a day when God will make all things new again, that we will live in a new heaven and a new earth. And so we look forward and and we live in this tension. And I know I've talked about it before and maybe you're tired of hearing me say it, but it's okay. Um, We live in this tension of already and not yet. That we know that the kingdom of God is already here through the body of believers, that God is moving powerfully through his Holy Spirit right now through the church, yet at the same time we look forward to a day where the kingdom of God will be fully fulfilled in the second coming of Jesus. And so we're called to walk in this tension. And for me, it can be difficult. See, I tend to lean one way where I look forward and I'm excited for the kingdom that will be fulfilled And it can be easy for me to only look forward and not realize that God is doing amazing things right now. And i got to check myself and remind myself, no, 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 through the body right now, God is doing amazing things, that the kingdom is here through the people of God. Or maybe you fall on the other side and you are excited that the kingdom is here through the God's people, yet um, you kind of get caught up in this cycle of thinking that everything's got to be perfect now and the church has just got to be everywhere and doing everything. And some things are just going to remain broken until God comes back to finally make everything new. And we have to be okay with that. And we have to live and walk in this tension of knowing that God's kingdom is here now, but it has not fully been fulfilled yet. We are already living in the kingdom, but it has not yet been fulfilled. And then another thing that I think we need to look to is living out some of the principles that we talked about. See, it sounds like that because of the fall, we can't live out those kingdom principles, but the truth is, is that by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, that when you become a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives in you and empowers you to live out the kingdom calling that God has for you. So when we talk about being ambassadors for God, man, the Holy Spirit empowers you to be a a representative, to live above reproach, to live and act and speak in a way that reflects the love of Jesus to everyone you interact with. You're capable of that by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. 
to be fruitful and multiply. Remember, not just having kids, but to raise up the next generation, to multiply God's kingdom here on earth. Man, we are capable of walking in that by the power of the Spirit. You're not married, you don't have kids, that's okay. You can raise up the next generation well by discipling, by pouring into young Christians. You can be a part of that. What about husbands and wives? Is it difficult? Yeah, is it impossible? No. To love one another selfish, selflessly. For men to live in a way that's selfless, faithful, loyal love to your wives and to your families. You're not married? That's okay. You can still love the people in your life that way. For ladies to be a place that people look to for help when they're in need for protection. Man, you're not married? That's okay. You can love the people in your life that way. We can care for the earth. I think this one's not that controversial of a one. Just don't treat the earth like trash. Like, we can do that. We can understand that. We can treat the earth with honor and and dignity, knowing that when we do so, we honor the God who set us here. And maybe most importantly for you today is to not settle for your broken kingdoms that we set up. Like, not to do what Adam and Eve did. Not to choose rebellion, to choose sin. To set up our own broken kingdoms that are in rebellion against God. And what we often do when we do that is we either suck other people into our broken kingdoms or we get sucked into other people's broken kingdoms. And it's just this cycle of pain and destruction and brokenness. And if you feel like that's you today, God is inviting you toward repentance. And repentance is not some scary thing. It's, it's not something that you need to be afraid of. No, no, no. It is an invitation to turn away from your broken kingdom and turn towards the kingdom of God. And, and that's available for you today. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, man, you've been on this kind of roller coaster with us and maybe not everything is landing. Maybe not everything is connecting for you. And you know what? That's okay. But what I hope you can grab hold of today is our main point that yes, we live in a world that's broken by sin. And because of our sin, we were separated from God, that we deserve punishment for our rebellion and setting up our broken kingdoms. But in his mercy, Jesus came to rescue us, to take the punishment that we deserve to close the gap between God and man. And that freedom and forgiveness and purpose and restoration are all possible for you when you place your trust in him, when you decide to walk with him. And if you want to start a relationship with Jesus today and give your trust to him, man, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that in just a second. But let's remember that the kingdom that was broken by the fall is restored in Jesus' death and resurrection. And that we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to walk in the kingdom calling that he has for us, each one of us. Let's pray together. God, thank you. Thank you that at the very beginning, When everything went wrong, you didn't abandon us. You didn't destroy us and start over. No, no, no. You remained faithful to us. You constructed a plan at the very beginning to restore all things through Jesus. Jesus, thank you that your death and your resurrection means life for us. It means freedom from sin. It means closeness with you. But it also means that the kingdom is being restored, that we can look forward to a day where all things will be made new. We look forward to that day. And we also remember that you are doing amazing things here right now through your body. And we just ask you to make us a part of that. If you want to place your trust in Jesus, you can pray something like this with me. Jesus, I believe that you died and rose again and that your death and resurrection 
means freedom for me. It means forgiveness. It means closeness. And that you are restoring all things. God, I want the freedom that you offer. Would you come into my heart? Would you change my life today? And man, if you prayed that, I just want you to know it's, it's not the words that do something special, man. It's the heart behind it. And so if you did pray that, I would just love it for you to pull someone aside today or reach out to us online through the website or the app and just let us know that you made that decision today because we would love to walk alongside you in that. God, would you empower each of us through your Holy Spirit to walk out our calling in your kingdom this week? Would you teach us how to do that? Thank you, God. We love you. We pray this all in your name. Amen.